Chapter Seventeen of Penrod. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Jonathan Burchard, March two thousand nine. Chapter Seventeen: Retiring from the Show Business. Megaphones were constructed out of heavy wrapping paper, and Penrod, Sam, and Herman set out in different directions, delivering vocally the inflammatory proclamation of the poster to a large section of the residential quarter, and leaving Roderick Magsworth Bitts Jr. with Verman in the loft, shielded from all deadhead eyes. Upon the return of the heralds, the Schofield and Williams military band played definitely, and an awakened public once more thronged to fill the coffers of the firm. Prosperity smiled again. The very first audience after the acquisition of Roderick was larger than the largest of the morning. Master Bits, the only exhibit placed upon a box, was a super-curio. All eyes fastened upon him and remained hungrily feasting throughout Penrod's luminous oration. But the glory of one light must ever be the dimming of another. We dwell in a vale of seesaws, and cobwebs spin fastest upon laurel. Vermin, the tattooed wild boy, speaking only in his native foreign languages, Vermin, the gay, Vermin, the caperer, capered no more. He chuckled no more, he beckoned no more, nor tapped his chest, nor wreathed his idolatrous face in smiles. Gone, all gone, were his little artifices for attracting the general attention to himself. Gone was every engaging mannerism which had endeared him to the mercurial public. He squatted against the wall and glowered at the new sensation. It was the old story, the old, old story of too much temperament. Vermin was suffering from artistic jealousy. The second audience contained a cash-paying adult, a spectacled young man whose poignant attention was very flattering. He remained after the lecture and put a few questions to Roddy, which were answered rather confusedly upon promptings from Penrod. The young man went away without having stated the object of his interrogations but it became quite plain later in the day. This same object caused the spectacled young man to make several brief but stimulating calls directly after leaving the Schofield and Williams' big show, and the consequences thereof loitered not by the wayside. The big show was at high tide. Not only was the auditorium filled and throbbing, there was an indubitable line, by no means wholly juvenile, waiting for admission to the next performance. A group stood in the street examining the poster earnestly as it glowed in the long, slanting rays of the westward sun, and people in automobiles and other vehicles had halted wheel in the street to read the message so piquantly delivered to the world. These were the conditions when a crested Victoria arrived at a gallop, and a large, chastely magnificent and highly flushed woman descended and progressed across the yard with an air of violence. At sight of her, the adults of the waiting line hastily disappeared, and most of the pausing vehicles moved instantly on their way. She was followed by a stricken man in livery. The stairs to the auditorium were narrow and steep. Mrs. Roderick Magsworth Bitts was of stout favor, and the voice of Penrod was audible during the ascent. "'Remember, gentlemen and ladies, each and all are now gazing upon Roderick Magsworth Bitts, Jr., the only living nephew of the great Rena Magsworth. She stuck arsenic in the milk of eight separate and distinct people to put in their coffee, and each and all of them died. The great arsenic murderess Rena Magsworth, gentlemen and ladies, and Roddy's her only living nephew. She's a relation of all the Bitts family, but he's her one and only living nephew. Remember! Next July she's going to be hung, and each and all you now see before you— Penrod paused abruptly. 
seeing something before himself, the august and awful presence which filled the entryway, and his words, it should be related, froze upon his lips. Before herself, Mrs. Roderick Magsworth Bitts saw her son, her scion, wearing a moustache and sideburns of blue, and perched upon a box flanked by Sherman and Vermin, the Michigan Rats, the Indian Dog Duke, Herman, and the Dog Part Alligator. Roddy also saw something before himself. It needed no profit to read the countenance of the dread apparition in the entryway. His mouth opened, remained opened, then filled to capacity with a calamitous sound of grief not unmingled with apprehension. Penrod's reason staggered under the crisis. For a horrible moment he saw Mrs. Roderick Magsworth Bitts approaching like some fatal mountain in avalanche. She seemed to grow larger and redder. Lightnings played about her head. He had a vague consciousness of the audience spraying out in flight, of the squealings, tramplings, and dispersals of a stricken field. The mountain was close upon him. He stood by the open mouth of the hay chute which went through the floor to the manger below. Penrod also went through the floor. He propelled himself into the chute and shot down, but not quite to the manger, for Mr. Samuel Williams had thoughtfully stepped into the chute a moment in advance of his partner. Penrod lit upon Sam. Catastrophic noises resounded in the loft. Volcanoes seemed to romp upon the stairway. There ensued a period when only a shrill keening marked the passing of Roderick as he was borne to the tumbrel. Then all was silence. Sunset, striking through a western window, rouged the walls of the Schofields' library, where gathered a joint family council and court-martial of four. Mrs. Schofield, Mr. Schofield, and Mr. and Mrs. Williams, parents of Samuel of that ilk. Mr. Williams read aloud a conspicuous passage from the last edition of the evening paper. Prominent people here believed close relations of women sentenced to hang. Angry denial by Mrs. R. Magsworth Bitts. Relationship admitted by younger member of family. His statement confirmed by boy friends. Don't, said Mrs. Williams, addressing her husband vehemently. We've all read it a dozen times. We've got plenty of trouble on our hands without hearing that again. Singularly enough, Mrs. Williams did not look troubled. She looked as if she were trying to look troubled. Mrs. Schofield wore a similar expression. So did Mr. Schofield. So did Mr. Williams. What did she say when she called you up? Mrs. Schofield inquired breathlessly of Mrs. Williams. She could hardly speak at first, and then when she did talk, she talked so fast I couldn't understand most of it, and it was just the same when she tried to talk to me said Mrs. Schofield, nodding. "'I never did hear anyone in such a state before,' continued Mrs. Williams. "'So furious! Quite justly, of course,' said Mrs. Schofield. "'Of course! And she said Penrod and Sam had enticed Roderick away from home. Usually he's not allowed to go outside the yard except with his tutor or a servant. And it told him to say that horrible creature was his aunt.' "'How in the world do you suppose Sam and Penrod ever thought up such a thing as that?' exclaimed Mrs. Schofield. It must have been made up just for their show. Della says there were just streams going in and out all day. Of course, it wouldn't have happened, but this was the day Margaret and I spend in the country every month with Aunt Sarah, and I didn't dream. She said one thing I thought rather tactless, interrupted Mrs. Williams. Of course, we must allow for her being dreadfully excited and wrought up, but I do think it wasn't quite delicate in her, and she's usually the very soul of delicacy. She said that Roderick had never been allowed to associate with common boys. 
Meaning Sam and Penrod, said Mrs. Schofield. Yes, she said that to me, too. She said the most awful thing about it, Mrs. Williams went on, was that though she's going to prosecute the papers, many people would always believe the story and... Yes, I imagine they will, said Mrs. Schofield musingly. Of course, you and I and everybody who really knows the Bits and Magsworth families understands the perfect absurdity of it. But I suppose there are ever so many who will believe it, no matter what the Bitses and Magsworth say. Hundreds and hundreds, said Mrs. Williams. I'm afraid it will be a great come-down for them. I'm afraid so, said Mrs. Schofield gently. A very great one, yes, a very, very great one. Well, observed Mrs. Williams, after a thoughtful pause, there's only one thing to be done, and I suppose it had better be done right away. She glanced toward the two gentlemen. Certainly, Mr. Schofield agreed. But where are they? Have you looked in the stable? asked his wife. I searched it. They've probably started for the far west. Did you look at the sawdust box? No, I didn't. Then that's where they are. Thus, in the early twilight, the now historic stable was approached by two fathers charged to do the only thing to be done. They entered the storeroom. Penrod, said Mr. Schofield. Sam, said Mr. Williams. Nothing disturbed the twilight hush. But, by means of a ladder brought from the carriage house, Mr. Schofield mounted the top of the sawdust box. He looked within and discerned the dim outlines of three quiet figures, the third being that of a small dog. The two boys rose upon command, descended the ladder after Mr. Schofield bringing Duke with them, and stood before the authors of their being, who bent upon them sinister and threatening brows. With hanging heads and despondent countenances, each still ornamented with a moustache and an imperial, Penrod and Sam awaited sentence. This is a boy's lot. Anything he does, anything whatever, may afterward turn out to have been a crime. He never knows, and punishment and clemency are alike inexplicable. Mr. Williams took his son by the ear. You march home, he commanded. Sam marched, not looking back, and his father followed the small figure implacably. You going to whip me? quavered Penrod, alone with justice. Wash your face at that hydrant, said his father sternly. About fifteen minutes later, Penrod, hurriedly entering the corner drug store two blocks distant, was astonished to perceive a familiar form at the soda counter. Yay, Penrod, said Sam Williams. Want some soda? Come on, he didn't lick me. He didn't do anything to me at all. He gave me a quarter. So'd mine, said Penrod. End of chapter 17